Welcome to We Genius Minds podcast, coming to you from the future in the midst of these crucial times of change. I am Paulina Amador, your host, director, and producer of Evolution the Genius Equation, a groundbreaking documentary. I invite you to watch my film at our website, wegeniusminds.com. Presenting revolutionary scientists, best-selling authors, and futurists, today's guest is renowned physicist, Dr. Michio Kaku. Our third episode is all about future technologies, how string theory goes beyond anything Einstein could conceive of, making possible the ability to create time machines, wormhole machines, and to perhaps explore the universe beyond our galaxy. Dr. Michio Kaku, how can we begin to find solutions from the future? to solve some of the current challenges we're facing today. For example, some astrophysicists think there is no life on the other side of a black hole, but your research suggests a different outcome. A wormhole is a gateway from our universe to another universe, and everybody knows about Alice in Wonderland. You see, Alice in Wonderland was written by a mathematician, Charles Dodgson, professor of mathematics at Oxford University. He wrote under the pen name of Lewis Carroll because, of course, being a mathematician, writing a children's book, he didn't want to create any problems. But he was a mathematician, and he knew about what are called multiply connected spaces. Mathematicians play with these things. If I have a universe here, another universe there, I can join these universes at the hip like Siamese twins, And that's called a multiply connected universe. For example, the looking glass of Alice. When Alice sticks her hand through the looking glass, her hand winds up on another universe, Wonderland. That's a wormhole. Mathematicians study them. We study them. But we didn't think it's possible to create them until 1935. In 1935, Albert Einstein writes the first paper about wormholes. He takes two black holes, joins them together at the hip, and he creates a wormhole that connects two universes. You can create a wormhole just by getting a sheet of paper, punching a hole through these two sheets of paper, and creating a gateway connecting two universes. Now, the mathematics is there. In fact, Stephen Hawking, uh, the late Stephen Hawking, even has stated publicly that they are physically possible, that one day we may find a wormhole in outer space, perhaps at the instant of the Big Bang, when the universe expanded rapidly, a microscopic wormhole was inflated to create a large wormhole. Or some people think that maybe we can also create our own wormhole using a black hole. A black hole, in some sense, is a gateway. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, to another universe. You see, when you have a black hole, we now realize that black holes spin very rapidly. We missed that years ago. We used to think that a black hole was a dot. That's it. Just a dot. You fall in, you die, and that's it. We don't think that anymore. Now we realize that black holes are spinning. Spinning very rapidly, up to about a million miles an hour. And if you look at the mathematics, the mathematics of spinning black holes, which were worked out in 1963 by mathematician Roy Kerr, it turns out that you don't die when you fall through the black hole. The black hole collapses to a ring, a ring. 
a ring of neutrons rotating very rapidly. It doesn't collapse because of centrifugal force. And if you fall through the ring, you wind up in Wonderland. It is a gateway between two universes. And so the rim of Alice's looking glass, the rim is the black hole. The rim of the black hole creates a distortion of space pushing two universes together. And that's how one day perhaps we'll escape the death of the universe itself. The universe itself, we think, will eventually die when temperatures become right above absolute zero. So why not leave our universe to a younger universe, a warmer universe, and then we can mess up that universe as well. Our misuse of natural resources is killing our planet, and I think it's due to our civilization's technology being so outdated. Decades ago, Nikola Tesla introduced highly advanced energy systems, and yet here we are still using oil and coal. What do more advanced civilizations look like? When we physicists look in outer space for signs of intelligent life, we don't look for little green men. I mean, after all, we're physicists. We like to quantify things. So we quantify them by categorizing them as type one, type two, and type three civilizations. A type one civilization is planetary. They control all the energy of sunlight landing on their planet. They control the weather. For example, they have cities on the ocean. They can control the, the uh, volcanoes and earthquakes. Planetary energy they can control. That's type one. Then eventually they exhaust the power of a planet and go to the nearest star, the sun. They control the energy of the sun, like a Dyson sphere that is enveloping the entire sun with a shell and using all that energy. That's type two, a civilization that uses the entire output of a star. Then there's type three. A type three civilization is galactic. They roam the galactic space lane. They play with black holes. Now on this cosmic scale, what are we? Are we type one that can play with the weather? Are we type two that can play with the sun? Are we type three that can play with black holes and the galaxy itself? No, we're type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. A type one civilization is sort of like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. They have ray guns, they have flying machines, they can whiz around the entire planet in a matter of minutes. That's type one. Type two is stellar, like Star Trek. Star Trek and the Federation of Planets, they play with stars. So a type two civilization would be like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. Type three, they roam the galactic space lanes like Star Wars. So Star Wars would be a type three civilization. And then of course, people ask, is there type four? What could possibly be beyond the energy of a galaxy? I was once giving a talk in the planetarium in London and a little boy comes up to me, 10 years old, and he grabs my pants and he says, professor, you're wrong, you're wrong. There's type four. So I said to the kid, look kid, There are planets, stars, and galaxies. That's it. That's it. There's nothing more than that. Therefore, there's only type one, type two, and type three. And he kept tugging on my pants and said, no, professor, there's type four. Type four. And I said, what could possibly be beyond galactic energy? And he said, the continuum. And I thought to myself, well, gee, maybe he's right. On Star Trek, there is a civilization beyond galactic. They play with galaxies. It's called the Q. 
their energy comes from the continuum. And what is a continuum? I thought to myself, what is greater than galactic energy? The energy is dark energy. Why is the universe expanding? It turns out that most of the energy of the universe is dark energy, the energy of the Big Bang. You see, the energy of the universe can be quantified. 73% of all the energy of the universe is the energy of the vacuum, the energy of nothing, the energy of expansion of the universe, and that is dark energy, 73%. 23% comes from dark matter, invisible matter that holds the galaxy together. That's dark matter. What about us, human beings? We're part of 4%. 4% is made out of atoms. So every high school textbook is now being rewritten on the planet Earth. Every high school textbook says the universe is mainly made out of atoms. Wrong. Nope. The universe is not mainly made of atoms. 23% of the universe is made out of dark matter. Dark energy is 73%, the energy of the vacuum. And matter that we're familiar with, atoms, only make up 4% of the universe. And so there is an energy source way beyond ordinary matter. Now, when I give talks about this, I tell the audience, if one day you figure out what dark matter and dark energy is, tell me first. We'll publish together and we'll share the Nobel Prize in physics. Because nobody knows what dark matter and dark energy is, but that's a frontier question. Most of the universe is missing. We don't know what makes up 96% of the universe. We have an energy crisis, and we physicists have been asked what will replace oil and coal. Well, hopefully, within a few decades, it'll be fusion power in southern France, Kardashian, France. We're building the gigantic ITER fusion reactor, which will burn, hopefully, seawater. From seawater, we will extract hydrogen, we'll fuse the hydrogen together to form helium at enormous temperatures and release energy. But what's beyond fusion? Well, on a scale now of 100 years, 150 years, maybe antimatter. Antimatter, matter, when they collide, give you pure energy via Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. I can take a teaspoon, a teaspoon of antimatter this much, drop it right here in New York, and vaporize the entire city with a little piece of antimatter that big. It could take us to Mars. An even smaller amount of antimatter would energize a, a rocket ship that would take us to Mars. And again, we do not have large quantities of antimatter, very expensive. But in principle, one day we may be able to create antimatter rockets, which will take us to the stars. Now we know, based on string theory, that all times exist simultaneously and that we have free access to the future, to so many possible futures. What would you say is our species' ultimate evolution? Many people have speculated, what is the ultimate destiny of the human race? I personally think, and this is just my own personal point of view, that our destiny is in the stars. We are destined to become a star-faring civilization. Not anytime soon, but perhaps within 100 years, we will build the first starship. My colleague, the late Stephen Hawking, even proposed ways in which laser beams can be used to energize tiny parachutes to send a postage stamp containing a chip and send it to the nearby stars. By using the known laws of physics, we can reach Alpha Centauri in 20 years traveling at 20% the speed of light. 
And that's with today's technology, with tomorrow's technology, with fusion power, with antimatter engines. We may be able to go to the nearest stars, not just with postage stamps, but with real-sized rocket ships. And even beyond that, perhaps one day we'll be able to harness the energy, the Planck energy, making us masters of space and time, and then allowing us the possibility of creating a wormhole to visit the nearby stars. Now, if you saw the movie Interstellar, a Nobel Prize winning physicist consulted for that movie, and you wonder where did this wormhole machine come from to take us to the stars? A physicist consulted for that movie. At the end of the movie, they give you the answer. You see, the people who gave us this machine to take us to the stars was our future, our descendants. Many, many, many generations into the future, they realized that in the past, there was a near tragedy with the existence of humanity. So they decided to give us the secret of wormhole machines by giving it to us in the past so that we could make the future possible. So they, they tricked us, but that's how humans of today were able to get access to technologies of the future. It was essentially given to us by our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. Sometimes people ask me a very simple question. And that is, where are they? That is, advanced civilizations, thousands, maybe millions of years more advanced than us, should be out there. And then the next question is, how come they don't visit us and share that technology with us? First of all, even within our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy, we've now taken a census. We've counted the number of habitable planets in a certain area. We extrapolate. We now realize that in our own backyard, the Milky Way galaxy, there are billions, billions of Earth-like planets right in our own backyard. Not hundreds, not thousands, but billions of essentially twins, twins of the Earth. When we go out and look at the night sky, realize that somebody out there could be looking back at us, wondering, is there life on the Earth? Because there are so many stars, so many planets out there, we've already cataloged 4,000 of them. Now with tests, the latest satellite going up, we expect to identify thousands more. And then the question is, well, where are they? And what do they look like? And what do they want? First of all, I think they're going to be peaceful for the most part. And so I think one thing about alien civilizations that are very advanced, initially, initially they may want to talk to us, but we have nothing to offer them. And so I think eventually they'll get bored and they'll simply leave us alone. And that's probably one reason why they don't interact with us directly, because we really have nothing to offer them. So the next question is, what are they going to look like? How will they communicate? I think in the future, they will communicate using what I call brain net. Today, already, we can now record memories in the living brain. By going to the hippocampus of the brain, putting two electrodes there, by tape recording the electrical activity of the hippocampus, we can record a memory we play it back and you remember it, they will push a button and then memories will come flooding into their brain. So in the future, the internet could become brain net. We'll send not just digital, we'll send emotions, feelings on the internet. And this is going to change human relations. We can be able to communicate suffering, communicate how we feel and communicate these emotions to other people so they will share in our feelings. That could help to reduce boundaries between people. So I think once we do encounter aliens from outer space, they will communicate not by speaking, 
but by BrainNet. They will communicate mentally. So when we meet aliens from outer space, are they going to look like us? Probably not. Then if you fast forward it into the future, they may not even be biological at all. When we meet aliens from outer space, they may not be biological. They may be partly genetically enhanced and part cybernetic. So they may not look like the original ancestors that gave birth to these creatures of today. They may be enhanced genetically and enhanced cybernetically, and they may communicate via brain net. And so they'll exist on a totally different scale than us. So when we meet them, we might even not even recognize what they are. We put ourselves at risk by giving too much power to technology, placing AI as an intermediary between ourselves and our future. Big tech actively influences future outcomes by directing people's minds to fulfill their agenda. On the other hand, remote viewers consistently have demonstrated the power to see and even change future events. Then people ask me, what science fiction movie is the most realistic? I think the movie 2001 is the most realistic because in that movie, if you listen carefully, the aliens land on the moon and leave a probe, a probe that scans the solar system and intervenes with the evolution of human beings. This probe makes copies of itself. You saw the image of Jupiter with millions of these probes surrounding Jupiter, and they go out and land on other moons, and they make copies of themselves. So one robot makes a thousand more robots. They go out, make a thousand more robots. So from one robot, you have a thousand, then a million, then a billion, then a trillion, and have a sphere of expanding robots. Where have you seen this before? This is called a virus. When a virus lands on a cell, it hijacks a cell. The cell therefore makes hundreds of copies of itself. They land on other cells, make more copies, and then you get a cold. You start to sneeze after two weeks. In two weeks, a molecule, a molecule has infected trillions of your cells and you start to sneeze. That is how intelligent life may scan the galaxy. Self-replicating robots called von Neumann probes landing on the moon creating copies of themselves like a cold and exponentially colonizing the galaxy. That is the basis of the movie 2001, which I still think is one of the most realistic encounters with extraterrestrial intelligence. Wow, Stanley Kubrick was way ahead of his time. 2001 Space Odyssey was made in 1968 and accurately reflects what is happening in our world today, biologically and technologically. Here is proof that we can see the future, and it is a challenging one we face. What would you say to our audience, from the youngest to the eldest, that would inspire in them wonder and hope for a brighter future? I think the future is there to be made, to be created. We invent the future. Some people think, what's the best way to predict the future? I think the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And how do you invent the future? Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next mind-blowing podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and don't miss our groundbreaking film, Evolution, the Genius Equation, at our website, wegeniusminds.com. Listen to this space for all things genius. 
Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.